thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week we're tapping into cyber security to find out how vulnerable we are online and we'll also reveal what we discovered lurking on a discarded laptop. Plus, using Zika virus to attack brain cancer. An even more powerful particle accelerator is on the drawing board. And Stephen Hawking says we need a new planet. I'm Tim Revel. I'm Chris Smith and you're listening to The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, anyone who works a night shift or perhaps presents an early morning radio show or travels across time zones knows exactly what jet lag is. Your body wants to be awake or asleep at all the wrong times. Now, the reason this happens is because every cell in the body has a chemical clock ticking inside it. And this is used to link the metabolism of the cell to the demands of the day. You upset that rhythm and, well, you know the consequences. The assemblage of clocks in the body all fall into step with the master clock that's in your brain. But now scientists at the University of Surrey have found that these so-called peripheral clocks are also sensitive to other cues as well, like when you eat your dinner. And it might be possible to stop some of the side effects of shift work or jet lag by altering when we eat. Jonathan Johnston. We now know that we actually have loads of clocks throughout our bodies. Within mammals, including humans, we have a so-called master clock that sits at the base of the brain. This latches on to the light-dark cycle to enable our bodies to be synchronised to the lighting environment in the outside world. But we have other clocks pretty much throughout the entirety of the body. And we think that these so-called peripheral clocks that exist outside of the brain regulate local function within the tissues that they reside in. And are they in some way linked to that master clock in the brain? Yes, that's right. In a normal situation, all the clocks in the body are in sync with one another. And we know that one of the main functions of the master clock in the brain is to actually maintain the synchrony uh, between all the clocks elsewhere in the body by nerve outputs, by hormonal outputs, and to some degree by regulating behaviour as well. So what didn't we know? What we didn't know was how we can use things like meal timing to synchronise clocks outside of the brain. We've known for a while that there's a really intimate link between circadian body clocks and metabolism. If you eat a particular meal during the daytime compared to at the night time, that same meal will actually give you much higher levels of blood sugar and blood fat after the meal if you eat the meal at night. So we've known that your response to food is dependent upon what time of day you eat, but we haven't really looked in much detail at the other way around, how the time at which you eat might be able to synchronise your, your body clock system. And that's what you were doing in this paper? That's exactly what we were doing, yes. How? We used a very intensive human protocol 
And for the first part of the laboratory protocol, uh, we had them on fixed um, sleep, wake and light um, schedules within the laboratory. We gave them an early breakfast half an hour after they woke up, a lunch five hours after the breakfast and then a dinner five hours um, after after the lunch. So all their meals were, if you like, squashed towards the early part of the day. Uh, they then had another six days in the lab, and for those six days, they had the same lighting and sleeping schedule as they had previously. The only difference was that each of their three meals was delayed by five hours. So they had a late breakfast, a late lunch, and a late dinner, which enabled us to then measure um, the effects of this late meal on their internal circadian system. And what was the pattern? Okay, so I think really the, the most striking result was that the five-hour delay in the meal times caused a five-hour delay in our natural rhythms of blood sugar concentration. So clearly our, our mechanisms for controlling blood sugar were able to be resynchronized to the food. And um, why does that matter? Because we know that a lot of people experience elements of what we call circadian desynchrony. So jet lag. For, yeah, jet lag is a classic example. Another one would be people doing shift work. And so people for a number of years now have been looking at how we can use things as light or a melatonin tablet to try and resynchronize these rhythms. The problem there is that we know that light and melatonin are very effective if given at the right time of day in resynchronizing the master clock uh, within the brain, but they probably don't have much direct effect on our metabolic rhythms. So what this means now is that we know that shift workers have uh, a high association with things like obesity, metabolic disease and cardiovascular disease. And so what we hope in the future is that if we can incorporate timed meals uh, as a strategy for helping these people, that will then reduce some of their long-term risk factors for these very important diseases. So mealtime could mean something quite different in future, couldn't it? That was Jonathan Johnston there discussing his work out just recently in the journal Current Biology. Speaking of travel, the 2014 outbreak of Zika virus in Brazil was heralded by a dramatic increase in cases of babies born with microcephaly, a condition characterised by an undersized head and brain caused by infection during pregnancy. But why the virus targets the nervous system wasn't known. Now scientists at Cambridge University have uncovered the answer and may have serendipitously discovered a means to make safer Zika vaccines, as well as a treatment for brain cancer. Taking up the story with Chris, virologist Ian Goodfellow. Zika infection during pregnancy can lead to this increase in occurrence in microencephalies of children with small heads, essentially. We got involved in a collaborative project with some researchers here at the Cancer Research Institute to try to understand why Zika virus causes microencephaly. And essentially what we found was that Zika virus likes to grow in cells that express a protein known as MSI1. This protein is a regulator of genes involved in neurodevelopment. Zika virus likes to infect these neuronal progenitor cells because they have high levels of this protein, and by doing so it kills those cells. And in fact, if we take normal laboratory cells that don't express this protein and we try to infect them with Zika, it doesn't really replicate very well. But if we introduce this protein and then infect them with Zika virus, the virus will replicate very well and will also kill the cells. What put you onto the fact that Zika is hungry for this factor, this protein, in the first place? 
Our collaborators at the CRI identified a family uh, where there were two children born with microencephaly, and it turned out these two children had a mutation in this gene, MSI1. This put us on to the idea that maybe MSI1 might be involved in, in the development of microencephaly. Uh, MSI1 is a key regulator for other genes involved in neuronal development. So when the virus infects those cells, it also inhibits the ability of that protein to function. So the expression of genes involved in normal brain development is altered by the virus. But at the same time, it's also trying to kill those cells it infects. The Zika virus comes in, it soaks up this factor in the cells that would normally be necessary for those cells to develop normally as nerve cells, uses them to encourage the virus to grow, and therefore pushes the cells off target, they turn into the wrong thing and die. But you end up with Zika virus at the end of it. Absolutely, that's it. That's exactly what happens. The one point I'd make as well is that we, at this point, we still don't know what that protein is doing in the virus life cycle. We know it's important, um, but we don't know exactly what it's doing. But it is possible, potentially in the future, if we were able to make a mutated virus that didn't bind to this MSI1 protein, therefore didn't replicate in the neuronal progenitor cells, but does generate a good immune response, we could use that as a potential vaccine, and this is something we would like to explore in the future. Ian Goodfellow, who wants to prevent Zika infections. But surprisingly, Zika might actually also be useful. Some researchers are interested in exploiting Zika's tendency to kill brain cells by using it as a weapon to treat certain cancers in the nervous system. My name is Harry Bulstrode. I'm a clinical lecturer in the neurosurgery department here at Adam Brooks Hospital, Cambridge. The project that I'm working on is uh, based on brain tumours, particularly nasty brain tumour called a glioblastoma. And um, glioblastomas grow and invade into brain and we operate on these uh, tumours and we remove the tumours but they invariably recur. So they come back and typically these patients only survive a few months or maybe a year or two. So it's really a devastating diagnosis. Part of the reason that these tumours are so nasty, we think, is that they include a population of stem cells, um, what we call glioma stem cells. And when we look at these cells, we find that they behave really very similarly to the stem cells in a baby's brain that cause rapid growth of the brain in the womb. So as a baby, you need your stem cells to divide and, and, and grow very, very quickly. And it seems like the cancer is using the same program that those baby stem cells are using to grow in the adult when it should be switched off. It seems that the Zika virus is attacking the stem cells in the baby's brain and that's why it's causing um, small brains and failure of brain development in the baby. And it seems that the Zika virus doesn't attack normal adult brain very much because adults can get Zika virus without becoming severely ill. What that makes us wonder is whether we might have here a virus that will specifically attack the stem cell population that shouldn't be present in the adult but is present in adults with brain tumours. If you kill off those stem cells using Zika virus, which you might not be able to get at using surgery because you might end up doing devastating damage to the person's brain to get all of them out, the virus will effectively ferret them out for you and where it hits healthy brain tissue again, it would just switch off. Yeah, that's the hope, that after any operation for these tumours, there are always a few cells left behind because they've invaded so widely in the brain. And in fact, in the, in the 1930s, when these operations were first being done, people used to cut out half the brain to try and cure these patients. And the, 
tumour would still come back in the other half of the brain. So these patients were left disabled and the tumours still come back. So what's, what's clear is that we need to find a new way to get at these stem cells that are hiding in normal brain. And it seems like Zika might offer us some ideas about how to do that. How do you envisage actually starting So we can grow the stem cells we're interested in, both the um, baby stem cells and also the tumour stem cells. We can grow those in dishes and then we can infect them and see what happens. What we can then do is think about developing a mouse model where mice with brain tumours are then treated with the Zika virus to see if the Zika virus can attack the brain tumours in the mouse and we can begin to see the effect on tumour versus the effect on normal brain. It's amazing, isn't it? That was Addenbrooke's neurosurgeon, Harry Bulstrode, and before him, Ian Goodfellow, who's Professor of Virology at Cambridge University. And Ian's paper on the discovery of why Zika virus targets the brain came out just this last week in the journal Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Tim Revel. Still to come, Stephen Hawking says we need a new planet. And quick! find out why plus cybersecurity you can hear what we found lurking on a bunch of old hard disks but first would you ever want to feel like you're at the center of a video game virtual reality is getting closer and closer to real life thanks to the introduction of touch sensors tech expert and angel investor peter cowley joins us now peter i've heard these terms augmented reality and virtual reality a lot what what actually are they so virtual reality is the concept where the image that ron is viewing is completely computer generated so it's generated by graphics or it's generated by one of these new 360 degree cameras mixed reality which is a term that's disappearing gradually is where you mix the actual scene around you as a human being with some computer generated augmented reality actually is not got the ability to interact with that so that in augmented reality you can't necessarily push something it'll move so but augmented reality is the future where you're actually interacting with something else in the environment. Mm. So, so some people talk about uh, starting to introduce touch into this equation. How, how does that actually work? We're using sight and, and sound, and this is adding a third sense. So this is where you, some part of your body, whether it's the chest, the arms, the fingers, etc., is actually experiencing something which is, is mechanical. So it feels like you're actually touching some subject or some object. And that's come about because of a whole stack of new technologies like these micro accelerometers in your phones, etc., all got very cheap, connectivity, etc. So that's been put together to provide devices which are not necessarily on your skin, like it might be a thimble might do it, but also blowing air. So there's a great video on the internet of a butterfly floating around on somebody's arm, which is done by puffs of air from various directions hitting the skin of the arm. So besides from being really cool, is, is this useful in some way? Well, gaming's used it for a long time. In fact, if you go back further still, the stick shakers, which were put on the Vulcan bombers, say, in the 50s, where if it was about to stall, that, that was, that's, that's feedback. That's a feedback mm-hmm. into the system. There's a lot of new applications. So, uh, for instance, medical. I, I saw a, a medical robotics company in Cambridge on Friday, which is actually allowing the surgeon to feel the tissue inside the body while he's operating on it. Training, you know, for aircraft maintenance, military, etc. And there's a new one as well in teaching where you can actually get the children or the students to understand something better, like a three-dimensional image, if they can feel it at the same time as see it. Yeah, so in terms of surgery, is this for robotic surgery? Could you also imagine a situation where you were uh, doing a practice on a body that doesn't even exist yet, but you're getting the same sorts of feelings you Absolutely. might do when you're a surgeon? Exactly. exactly, for training purposes. You could be inside the body doing things. So you could have feel for what it's going to be like when you actually 
They've got a real human being in front of you. That sounds incredible. So how far away is this from becoming normal or something we can actually use? Um, like, if you remember the um, Microsoft Kinect, which was a, or Kinect was a, was a gaming device. That's been used for um, the gait of horses or the gait of people. So this, applications come out of other things. So this at the moment is definitely strongly used in gaming. But the killer app, if there is a killer app, hasn't really been found yet. There's a huge amount of technology and a huge amount of investment going into uh, VR and AR headsets and the world will work out what the best use is for it but it's not that clear for me at the moment well i can't wait to find out what that killer app is for ar and <laughs> vr it sounds incredible thank you so that was tech expert and angel investor peter cowley now at the end of uh, may scientists from all over the world met in berlin to discuss the successor to the large hadron collider this is of course the so-called atom smashing particle accelerator that's present at cern this next one they're calling the Future Circular Collider, or FCC, and it's going to be three times larger and seven times more powerful than the current LHC, and it should be able to, to simulate energy levels that are much closer to those that we see or were seen during the Big Bang. Tom Crawford heard about the project from physicist Carsten Welsh, who's at the University of Liverpool. The fundamental driving question of all of this is why? Why are we? Why is the universe the way it is? Why do the fundamental forces behave in the way that they behave? And a future collider can give us these insight that currently cannot be gained by using any of the facilities on Earth because we are limited in the ultimate energy of these colliders. Can we not upgrade or extend the, the current Large Hadron Collider that we have? The fundamental problem is um, we need to look into what limits actually, the, if you want, the performance of the, the current Large Hadron Collider. And there are a few limitations, and, and one of uh, this is the, the ultimate achievable energy. Now, the energy of a particle beam is provided to the particles by means of radio frequency power, which is pumped into the accelerator and then transferred over to the beam. In order to keep that beam on a circular path, you need magnets. There is simply not the technology available to bend a higher energy particle beam around the 27 kilometer circumference of the LHC. So the moment we want to go to higher beam energies, we need much stronger magnets in the existing tunnel, or we need a larger tunnel in order to be able to store that kind of high energy particle beam. And looking back at sort of what we've learned in the past from the LHC and from these kinds of experiments, of course, there was the discovery of the Higgs boson particle, which, was, which is huge. But beyond sort of the physics and the understanding, are there any other applications in sort of everyday life? Oh, absolutely. If you look back at past colliders, every single particle collider led to a breakthrough in our understanding of nature. It is not unlikely that there will be similar discoveries also in that energy range. Now, in terms of more tangible applications immediately for society, if you look back again in the history of particle physics, the impact on society um, can't be overstated. For example, the, the Internet itself was basically a spin-off from particle physics collaboration. And, and what would we be today without the Internet and, <laughs> and mobile communications? And the magnets we talked about before are used nowadays routinely in hospitals for NMR diagnostics. So having access to even better magnet technologies, even higher field strengths, would increase the resolution of such medical diagnostics automatically. The technologies that will be developed along the conceptual design of this machine will lead to breakthroughs also that impact on our lives every single day. What is the main aim then of the, of the FCC project? 
So at the moment, there's an international community who looks into a conceptual design report. What would be required in order to build such a machine? So it's like you're planning for the plan in some sense. Absolutely. At the moment, the LHC has an expected lifetime of at least 20 years from now. If you look at these timescales, then the construction of that next machine would already take me to pretty close to my retirement age. We need to engage the next generation of scientists. So these are really school kids today to, to think about the questions where we don't have answers for at the moment that they consider a career in science and also develop technologies that will benefit everyday life in the future. So, who knows? Maybe the next big physics discovery could be made by someone who's actually listening to this programme. Carsten Welsh there, speaking to Tom Crawford about the FCC. From the future of the LHC to the future of humanity. Could you imagine living elsewhere? We're not talking about a new home or town, but a different planet. Recently, Professor Stephen Hawking has said that we have 100 years left to colonise a new planet. He, along with other eminent scientists, will be speaking at Starmus Festival in Trondheim later this month. This five-day festival is a, cl- is a celebration of science and music, and it'll be at Starmus where Professor Hawking will reveal just what the problem is. In the meantime, Izzy Clark went to an event at the Royal Society in May to investigate what needs to be done to find an alternative Earth. I strongly believe we should start seeking alternative planets for possible habitation. Even from Professor Stephen Hawking himself, it sounds like an impossible challenge. Can we really find and colonise a new planet within the next century? With climate change and the global population continuing to increase, is there a plan or planet B? I spoke to astronomer and director of Starmus Festival, Garrick Israelian, to find out what conditions we'd need to survive on an alternative Earth. We were part of the evolution for many millions of years. It's very deep in our genes to have the daylight that we have, a magnetic field of the Earth that we have. We will need the same gravity, so we don't really know if you change those conditions slightly, let's say 10% of magnetic field, 10% of the daylight, what will happen to us? How are we going to evolve as creatures? And are there any possible planets that we might be able to relocate to in the next 100 years? we don't know any now. The only thing that astronomers find from time to time are planets where you can have liquid water. But we don't know if there is or not. But we have no idea about magnetic fields in those planets. We have no idea about atmospheres. So all this bunch of parameters that we have for the Earth... But uh, I don't think that having a planet with the mass of the Earth and with liquid water is enough. Certainly it's not enough. So more research needs to be done into finding an alternative Earth. Earlier on in the year, scientists from the University of Cambridge found signs of water on a planet within TRAPPIST-1, a planetary system 39 light-years away. But that's quite a long way to go without knowing other environmental factors. But imagine if we had found the perfect planet. How do we get there? What, in terms of technology, is holding us back? I'm Claude Nicolier. I was a European Space Agency astronaut for 25 years. The two major problems in technology development for the next few decades for going to the solar system will be protection against radiation and the the proper propulsion system. 
problem is if you go outside of the vicinity of the Earth toward the Moon already or Mars or satellites or Jupiter or Saturn, we need to protect the crew against radiation. Once we are on the surface of another celestial body, we can build habitats where there is protection. If we are on Mars, we can use Mars material to cover the habitat so that we are protected to a certain degree against radiation. For the rest, we need, of course, propulsion systems that allow us to go from one place to the other in the solar system using something else than chemical propulsion. Chemical propulsion is not, doesn't give us enough efficiency and capability to travel. And do you know of any further work that's being done to reach that? Well, a lot of testing being, is being done on nuclear propulsion, or let's say it was done in the 60s mainly, then it was kind of abandoned. We start now again to look at new propulsion systems. Once you are in space, you can use electric propulsion where you ionize a, a material, then you accelerate the ions uh, using electric field. The problem with electric propulsion, although it's very efficient, is that thrust is very low. So you cannot leave the surface of a celestial body, be it the Earth or Mars or any other body in the solar system, using electric propulsion. But to go from one place to the other, if you uh, have enough time, you can do it. It's safe to say we need to improve our propulsion systems and radiation protection. But what about the human body? Can it actually cope with such a long journey? I spoke to Simon Evitz, a space physiologist who's creating the first commercial astronaut training centre, Blue Abyss. When we're in space and gravity is taken away from us, we have less need to contract our muscles. There aren't heavy things to lift up. Um, We don't move our heavy body around. And so our muscles and our bones decondition. They wither, if you like. And what are some of the other factors that will affect us living in space? Radiation is currently one of the showstoppers, whether it be galactic cosmic radiation or solar flares. High-energy particles can hit the body and hit the cells, and these can damage and mutate cells, increasing the risk of cancer, which is, of course, something we want to avoid. We see uh, reductions in immune capability that occurs uh, over long periods in space. All of these things, these add up to basically deconditioning and degrading the body and, and our physicality. Can we live in deep space for a long period of time? Using the same systems that we have now then I would say no. It's very unlikely that we would do so because the body deconditions so much and we would be in a weak state, or the individuals involved would be in a weak state when they arrived um, at the planet X number of months or years away. What we need, ideally, is rather than a number of systems, a number of devices to be able to help us, we need to take gravity with us. So we're talking about spinning spaceships, we're talking about human centrifuges in space. Because if we've got gravity or artificial gravity with us, then all of our systems are being affected and being stimulated in the same way that we tend to find on Earth. Right. So all we have to do in the next 100 years is to find a new planet with the same mass, atmosphere and magnetic field, develop a new propulsion system and ideally have a spacecraft that generates artificial gravity and protects us against radiation. We are running out of space on Earth, and we need to break through the technological limitations, preventing us living elsewhere in the universe. I am not alone in this view, and many of my colleagues will make further comments on the set Starmus next month. Looks like we've got a lot to do in the next century. We better get started. 
You heard from Stephen Hawking, Garrick Israelian, Claude Nicolier and Simon Evitz. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith and Tim Revel. In the next half an hour, cybersecurity. As life moves increasingly online, so is crime and fraud. And we're looking at just how vulnerable we are. And on that note, what do people tend to do with an old computer? According to some sources we've checked, half of UK owners take their old machines to the tip, which amounts to millions of dumped computers. But what about the data that was on those computers? Well, most people believe that if you delete something, it's gone. Unfortunately, it hasn't. Izzy Clark reports. Have you ever sold an old laptop? If so, you probably made sure you deleted all your files before you parted ways. But how can you be sure that all your data was wiped from your device? I've got my hands on a used hard drive, the data storage device in a computer, and all the files from the previous owner have apparently been deleted. This is a process called formatting. It's a simple function on your computer that gets rid of all of your data. So there shouldn't be any information left on here, right? Well, to double check, Graham Reimer from the Computer Laboratory in Cambridge is going to run a few tests to see if the hard drive is indeed empty. Hi Graham, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, here are the hard drives. It's quite a collection. (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple in there, so just see what you can find. The hard drive from a computer is usually the size of a paperback book. All of your files and any activity that you do on your computer is recorded there. Graham had about 24 hours to investigate. So what did you find? I can see loads of different files right in front of me. Actually, there was an element of triage because there was just so much data available. This chap was a keen photographer. Is that someone's wedding photos? It is. Oh, we've got hundreds of wedding photos. We have a trip to Paris here. Oh, my God. The Eiffel Tower. This is the owner of the laptop himself on a skiing holiday. Not only did we have enough archive to track his life over a 10-year period, but lots of digital photographs have data embedded by the device. I can tell that it was taken at about 2.58pm back in 2009 on the 19th of February. A lot of devices now, including the ubiquitous iPhone, as well as uh, most cameras, embed GPS data as well. So had this photograph been taken on a smartphone, we'd even be able to tell what mountain the previous owner was standing on. Date, time and location. But whilst it's unnerving, there's only so much damage that can be caused knowing this information. What else were you able to find? We have invoices. I expect the the, the most compromising piece of information that we have is uh, this chap's driving licence. So that's actually got his address on there, his date of birth. It's got a signature. Oh, and his signature, yep. So say he had thought he had deleted his hard drive, uh-huh. which is effectively what he thinks he's done. What could happen if this got into the wrong hands? Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's a limitless... Uh, <laughs> obviously, there's potential for identity fraud. There will be files with passwords saved in them, perhaps online banking credentials. Anything which you think is safe on your computer that's not encrypted is not safe in in this context. So anything that he's left lying about on his computer, which could be exploited by an attacker for financial gain, perhaps, is fair game. Encryption is a modern form of cryptography that allows a user to hide information from others. 
it uses a complex algorithm which turns your data into a series of seemingly random characters. That means it's unreadable by those without a special key or password, which will then unscramble and decrypt your data. But this hard drive wasn't encrypted. We were able to find out the previous owner's signature, home address and his bank details thanks to that saved invoice. But can a hard drive reveal even more about an owner? So your internet history is just a computer file. It's a little bit trickier and, and time-consuming to extract that sort of information, but anything that existed on, on his computer uh, before it was formatted is potentially uh, discoverable. Whilst it takes longer to find, this means we would be able to access his email account, his contacts, and even passwords to various online accounts, potentially bank account included. Obviously, we're based here at the Computer Laboratory in Cambridge. You must have access to so many different techniques and so many utensils. How have you been actually able to retrieve this information? Uh, Well, uh, utensil-wise, we we used an old wooden spoon, really. Uh, This is um, free open-source software, which we used. Normally, that hard drive would be plugged into a computer, so that's exactly what I did. I just got a garden variety desktop PC. I took the side off it. I found a spare cable. I was able to uh, read the data straight off that drive. Any attacker with, uh, with half an hour of, of Googling could, uh, could learn the same techniques which we've, which we've used here. Very, very simple technology. That's quite terrifying. Effectively, what we've learned is that by clicking that delete button, your files aren't actually removed from the hard drive. Absolutely not. It's like having a, a book and just ripping out the contents page. If you still want to read the book, everything's there. Uh, you just can't jump to the, to the interesting bits straight away. If you want to rifle through it page by page, uh, you can still find all the information. And, and that's exactly what the, these fast uh, deleting and formatting techniques do. How do we actually properly delete our data from a hard drive? Luckily, we've come across it, but in the wrong hands, that could be quite problematic. The only way to defend against this is to overwrite every single part of the disk. Going back to that analogy, that would be the same as going through your book quite painstakingly over many, many hours and tipexing over every single letter in the book. Obviously, people don't like to do this routinely because it takes quite a long, long time, but it's something that you might consider doing before you go to sell a laptop. Another defence, which is much, much faster and better for for several reasons, is to use encryption. So both OS X has had FileVault since the Lion version. Since Windows Vista, we've had BitLocker uh, included. Both these programmes allow you to encrypt volumes on your hard drive and that means that if you ever leave your laptop on a, on a train, if you have your laptop stolen, all that data is useless because it's just garbled junk uh, on the disk. Uh, you don't have to worry about overwriting the disk afterwards because it's already junk. Without the password to decrypt it, it's, it's, it's quite useless to an attacker. So I would recommend people seriously consider looking into the, the encryption options available. This doesn't have to be a software option. Lots of modern hard drives, especially solid state drives in, in business class laptops, uh, support encryption as well. That was some juicy stuff on those old hard drives. Graham Reimer speaking with Izzy Clark. Just in case you're worrying, we can confirm that we have now properly deleted all of the data we discovered. So we've looked at deleting data, but what about accessing it? A common complaint is that we have to have different passwords for different accounts and different devices, and to make them secure, we have to make those passwords so complicated that we then can't actually remember them. So we write them down and we also use the same one for everything. So... 
it might be music to some people's ears to hear that the password stays could actually be numbered because increasingly technology is shifting towards the use of what we call biometric systems instead. But what actually are biometric systems and are they actually any better? Well, Nate Langson is the tech correspondent at Bloomberg. He's with us now. So, Nate, first of all, what's the beef with passwords, apart from the fact they can be tricky to remember? Well, one of the biggest problems with passwords is that people tend to prefer convenience over security. So the most popular password in the world every year is password, closely followed by 123456, um, because they're easy to remember. The problem is, is that with a large percentage of people using such a password, it becomes very easy for a hacker to get many thousand of accounts uh, on the assumption that some of them will use these passwords. Therefore, they can get into them very easily. And the same is similarly true for just very easy to remember words, you know, summer and uh, and people's names. They're very easy and they're, they're hacked with what's called a dictionary attack. Very easy, very simple uh, and very common, sadly. And so a biometric method of protection, what's that instead? Well, the most commonly used one at the moment that I think most people listening would be familiar with is a fingerprint sensor on a smartphone. So these have become increasingly popular since about 2014. A number of manufacturers now use these. And essentially what it does is it overrides the need to use a password or a PIN because only you have your fingerprint, generally speaking at least. And um, you have the ability to unlock it just by tapping your finger against a phone. You don't need to remember anything. You just need to be the same as you were when you set it up. Um, And you can combine that with a password or with another factor of verification or login, a technology called two-factor authentication, so two forms of login together. And that increases uh, your level of security just enormously. And and most big companies and large organizations will will now try and get people to enable this kind of two-factor security if possible. Does it actually work like that, though, Nate? I know Hollywood is Hollywood, but certainly I've seen films where people chop people's thumbs off and use them to gain entry to uh, a secure facility. I've also heard tell that people have taken photographs of themselves or their eye and then held it up to a security camera and, and the picture was enough to fool it into thinking it was looking at the individual's real eye. It's true. And, and I, I will I will admit that I have asked a doctor before now, if a, a finger was cut off, how long would it take before it was useless against unlocking a phone? Uh, but I never tend to get a clear answer. Um, the fact is, though, you, you are generally right. And, and away from Hollywood, we have seen evidence, at least, that the, the very high resolution of cameras now can take pictures of a, of a person's iris uh, with enough definition to trick some systems into believing it is the user. Um, similar is true of facial recognition, where it's looking at a user's, you know, a person's face. And unless you're tracking uh, what's called depth uh, or depth mapping, where where you're not just looking at a photograph of somebody, then again, those can be a little easier to fool. Um, But the key is, is that most of these systems, at least in the consumer space, they're they're often paired with a second factor of authentication for the really important stuff like payment uh, systems and and things like that. So at the moment, they're they're there for convenience. Some of them maybe can be fooled if you're clever enough, but they're not posing a massive risk to security right now. And... Very briefly, Nate, what about implementation of this? Because it's not as trivial when we've got phones that you can just quite quickly tap in a password into to have some kind of finger scanner or an eye scanner in those devices. Doesn't this mean we need a sort of regime shift in how all the devices are made? And that's going to take time, which will inevitably hold things up. 100%. And and that's exactly why the password is likely to stick around, because while all these sensors are becoming more affordable because more people are buying the devices in the high end, and that makes the the next generation a little cheaper to be implemented in, at the end of the day, not everyone has the budget to buy a smartphone with a fingerprint sensor or an iris scanner in. So you need a fallback for the people that don't have access. 
that's why we'll still have passwords probably for the next 50 years. But it is also hopefully why people may be a little more savvy and aware that password is in itself the worst password, ironically, you can possibly choose. Better just go and change mine, I think. Thank you very much, Nate. That's Nate Langston. He's the technology correspondent for Bloomberg. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith and Tim Revel. This week, we're looking at cybersecurity and still to come, signs that financially, cybercrime has overtaken more traditional skullduggery pursuits. But first, a world is fast approaching where everything around us is connected to the internet. Your fridge will shop online for more milk and ice cream when you run low. Your phone will tell your oven that you're behind schedule on the journey home and to turn the dinner down. And the heating will fire up at the right moment so the house is already warm when you walk through the door. All of these interconnected devices are referred to as the Internet of Things. But with convenience comes risk. And Stephen Murdoch from UCL is with us to explain what we need to watch out for. Stephen, how do these devices actually work? What's happened with the Internet of Things is that because computers have become cheaper than before and smaller, we can now put them in all sorts of interesting household appliances. And to get the full power of computers, we want to connect them to the Internet so they can talk to other computers and talk to us. But the people who are making these home appliances are fairly new to the industry of Internet-connected things, and so they make mistakes. What sort of mistakes are they making? Are they very secure or not really? In many cases, they're not secure. We've seen significant problems. A common one is that they come with default passwords. And so anyone who knows the default can log into this computer rather than only the owner. Um, And then the other one is that the vulnerabilities that people do discover never get fixed because the companies don't have any way of installing software updates on these computers. I remember for a while people were worried about smart TVs. Uh, What's that all about? Well, smart TVs are just televisions with computers, but they added in things like cameras and microphones and made useful features like voice recognition. But the way the voice recognition worked is it would send your voice up to some other computers run by the manufacturer to work out what is actually being said. And the manufacturer, Samsung in this case, warned people not to have private conversations in front of the television, which caused people to be aware of these sorts of risks. Yeah, so don't tell any secrets in your lounge. I mean, at the moment, you've got a, a device in front of you. Uh, what what actually is that? Sort of looks a bit like a webcam. Yeah, so this is a, a webcam, um, but this one is specifically marketed as a baby monitor. And um, the way I've set it up is on my own private network. But what's happened quite frequently is people accidentally set this up so that anyone on the internet can, to, can connect to it and leave it with its default password, which everyone knows. And then just as I can, control it from this computer so if i push this button you can hear it whirring around yeah so that's a webcam just turning around so this this would be used for uh if you've got a baby upstairs you might instead of having one of those old-fashioned walkie-talkies you can actually see what your baby's doing if they're upset or they need some attention yeah it's got an infrared camera it can see in the dark um it's got a microphone so you can hear what's being said and it's also got a speaker so you can talk to the baby well, I mean, that sounds fantastic. So what what can go wrong with one of these internet-connected versions? Well, what turned out is that um, there were enough of these that were connected to the internet without any reasonable security. And people were able to scan for all of these. And then some of these were just dull CCTV cameras looking at car parks, but other ones actually had children in front of them. And one parent discovered that the child was afraid of going to bed at night um, because there are voices. And 
parent just thought this was a nightmare, but it turned out that there were some people who were hacking into this camera and then saying things to the child overnight. And it was only after quite some time that the parent heard this and worked out what was going on. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely horrifying to find out that, you know, you, you buy this thing to look after your child, but actually someone on the internet's out exploiting it. So how can that actually be avoided? What, what should someone do who wants to use this tech, but needs to uh, make sure that their child isn't being spoken to by a strange person on the internet? So the standard advice is to do something like change the passwords, which is a good idea. But really, I think that the government needs to take more responsibility. The Royal Society published a report. I was on the steering committee, which said there should be some way for customers to be able to tell the difference between a device that is designed to be secure and will keep itself secure from everything else out there which is terrible and i think once that has been put in place and there's some signs that the national center for cyber security will do it then customers will be in a much better situation of being secured but not having to jump through ridiculous hoops to do so yeah that sounds really good a sort of hallmark for cyber security thanks a lot stephen murdoch from ucl So we've heard from Stephen how things can go wrong and the evidence is that cybercrime is growing extremely rapidly and in terms of scale it's overtaken traditional forms of crime and fraud. Ross Anderson is the Professor of Security Engineering at Cambridge University and I went to see him to hear how large this problem is and what policymakers need to do to stop it. Most crime in Britain is now online. About one million British households this year will become victims of traditional property crime such as burglary and car theft, and about 4 million households will be victims of fraud, scams and abuses of various kinds, the great majority of which are online and electronic. What is the relative value of those two crimes, though? The relative value is probably about the same, but online crime is increasing at a tremendous rate, and it does have real psychological effects on people if they become victims of fraud and they're then not believed by their banks and um, the police aren't interested and everybody just treats it as if it was their fault. If I come home and someone has broken into my house and ransacked the place, I know exactly what to do. I can phone up the police. They'll probably send someone round. If I come home and find that someone's been in my bank account online, what do I do? What the bank should do is make you good if you're a victim of fraud. That's the uh, guidance from the Financial Conduct Authority. But very often banks don't do that because they've got all sorts of small print in their terms and conditions, and they'll say then it's not their fault, so it must be yours. I can't phone the police then? You can phone the police if you like, but the problem is that in 2005, an agreement was made between the banks and the police to the effect that fraud should be reported to the banks. And as a result, the Home Office has been able to claim for the past dozen years that crime has been falling, when in fact it's just been moving online like everything else. What can we do about this? the police are going to have to put more effort on doing cybercrime enforcement because at present the online bad guys know that Britain is basically undefended. You can do cybercrime here, you won't get pursued and you won't get arrested except perhaps if the FBI get interested if you defraud Americans. So America are much more hot on this than we are? America is much better at cybercrime enforcement than anywhere else. In fact, the American government spends as much on cybercrime enforcement as the next dozen governments put together. Now, given the rate of growth of 
these sorts of technologies and the interconnectedness of the world. We've got the Internet of Things, we've got people buying mass-produced gadgets from China, for example, many of them with very poor security, an admin password you can't change, and the admin password is admin, for example. What does the government need to do urgently so we're not continuing to sleepwalk into this nightmare? The security problems of the Internet of Things will eventually, I believe, be fixed by players such as the European Union. Europe is already the world's regulator for privacy because Washington doesn't care and nobody else is big enough to matter. I hope that it will become the world's regulator for safety as well. And so when you end up buying things like air conditioners from China or Korea, these will end up having to carry on them a CE mark, which means that they comply with all applicable standards. And we now have standards for vulnerability management. And what that will mean is that you won't be able to export your air conditioner to Europe unless you've got some way of patching vulnerabilities. And you know, once Europe starts enforcing that standard vigorously, um, we should hopefully be beneficiaries of it, even if we um, have left the EU by then. What about transport, Ross? Because that's one thing you haven't mentioned yet. Transport's massive, cars, planes and so on. What's happening with them? Because they all have computer systems. We're beginning to see in the transport field, firstly, that some cars have been hacked and have even been driven off the road. What we're also seeing is that some car makers, such as Tesla, are starting to patch their cars every month so that if vulnerabilities are found, they can be fixed. By patch, you mean the car has got to acquire a new piece of software code to address a problem that's been identified? Yes, that's right. Um, Your mobile phone and your laptop are typically patched every month. So um, a new software release comes out from, you know, Microsoft or Android or Apple or whoever, and your laptop or your phone will install that automatically. In future, this is going to have to happen to cars too. And it also provides an opportunity for any safety flaws that arise in self-driving cars to be patched quickly and at scale without having to recall millions and millions of vehicles to the garage to have their software changed. Well, that sounds good. What's not to like? The problem is that when you start patching stuff every month, you need to maintain a software team which is all fair with that particular product. My phone, for example, is a Google Nexus 5X, which I bought last year, and Google now tells me they're going to stop security support in September next year, which I find very annoying. I don't really think it's very good that I've only got a two-year secure life in that product. And if the same thing happens in a car that I buy in two years' time, then I will be very annoyed indeed. Because if it becomes necessary to patch a car for it to remain safe, and if you've got a a 10-year-old Mercedes and Mr. Mercedes suddenly says, sorry, it's too expensive for us to patch cars that are more than 10 years old, because that would mean that we had to um, keep test equipment and engineers current on dozens and dozens and dozens of old models, then that would mean uh, that your car has to be taken away and scrapped. And if suddenly cars are scrapped after 10 years instead of 20 years, that's going to double the CO2 emissions from the car industry, and that's surely not going to be acceptable. So what do the government need to do to address all of these very concerning points? We did a big study last year for the European Commission because it's not just cars, it's medical devices, it's electrical equipment, it's all sorts of other things. 
And the European Union, with 500 million people, is a big enough market that if they say to Mr. Ford or Mr. Samsung or whoever, sorry, unless you meet our standards, your products can't come into our market, then that actually matters. So that, I think, is the place where leverage is going to be applied, and we're going to end up having rules which will simply tell the car makers, sorry, you've got to keep supplying security patches for 25 years on consumer protection grounds and environmental grounds. And if that's going to be expensive, you better figure out how to do the engineering better, or you'd better have fewer models, or you'd better hire more engineers. Your choice. Can't argue with that. Ross Anderson there from Cambridge University's Computer Laboratory. And thank you to our other guests this week, Graham Reimer, Stephen Murdoch and Nate Langson. And now it's time for Question of the Week. Katie Haler has been turning up the heat on Jim's question. I recently started to attend a hot yoga class where they claim that the 40 degrees Celsius room helps warm up your muscles faster. Knowing that the body tries really hard to maintain a very narrow temperature range, I was wondering if the muscles are really getting warmer or is there something else going on? What happens at a cellular level that makes it better to have a warmed up muscle? Here's Christoph Schwiening from the University of Cambridge. Well, muscles get warm when they contract repetitively, like when you're running, cycling or skipping. Yoga produces relatively little heat and the temperature of most muscles will be close to that of your core body temperature, whether you're in a normal room or in one heated to 40 degrees C. Scientific investigations into hot yoga provide little evidence that it is much different from normal yoga. However, passive heating can improve health and help make you aerobically fitter. For instance, zonas can produce cardiovascular skin and mental health benefits. It is possible that hot yoga may produce some of these effects. That's the hot part of hot yoga sorted. What about warming up muscles before a class? What's going on at a cellular level to make this a good idea? The warmer the muscle is, the more force it can produce. The evidence for that is very clear. So if you want to run a fast, short race where maximum power output is needed, you should warm up first. But warming up is about more than just getting a muscle warm. It's about increasing blood flow to the muscles and increasing the amount of blood being pumped by the heart. Warming up muscles also changes your general physiology from the control of blood flow, hormonal background, mental state, neuronal pathways and energy supply. As far as yoga is concerned, the main benefit of warming up using movement rather than simple passive heating may well be the changes in neuronal activation. Warming up may well help to relax muscles that would otherwise be partially contracted. It is true that warming can produce small and transient increases in muscle flexibility, but the current view is that it is the training of our nervous systems that produces the biggest improvements in range of motion. So it's clear that warming up before aerobic exercise, like running, helps you to perform better. For yoga... It may be that physically warming up helps to relax muscles, leaving you better equipped to carry out the various stretches and poses you'll be adopting in your class. Next time, we're tackling this acoustic inquiry. I have an apartment with a terrace oriented towards a highway. Would it be possible to use anti-noise to take away the highway noise on the terrace? Alternatively, to install huge anti-noise speakers next to the highway to take away the noise for the entire neighbourhood. 
So can we make noise-cancelling headphones for a flat? What do you reckon? If you think you know the answer, email chris at thenakedscientists.com. And that is it for this week. The producer was Izzy Clark. Thanks to her. And do be sure to join us at the same time next week when we'll be answering your sci-curious questions. It's one of our Q&A shows. You ask, we answer. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.